Hello and welcome to Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we self-indulgently chat about all kinds of films, from genre trash to art house, from 2001 to Plan 9 from Outer Space. My name is Michael Brooks, I'm here with my co-hosts Sam Oliver and Bill King. Hello. Hello there. Today's episode we are going to be talking about three films that we very much love, films that have played a formative role in some way for each of us, and um, which we hold in a particular high and fond regard. So before we get into those, we're just going to talk a little bit about some film news from the week that's just gone. So guys, which, I don't know whether you saw this, which renowned Shakespearean actor uh, has been cast by Michael Winterbottom to play which world leader? Any, any ideas? Um, is it Christopher Eccleston playing... Donald Trump. That's very interesting. He's a bit. He's a little bit too tall for the Donald, isn't he? I feel like they wanted. They should do diverse casting, so it's not anything like actual Donald Trump. Really go the other way with it. Yeah, he could fill out. He could fill out. I, I could see that. <laughs> I like that. No, I know this. I know this one, and I think it's great. It's uh, it's the boy Branner playing um, Boris Johnson. Yes, indeed, you're right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Boris Johnson is being portrayed by Kenneth Branagh in a new. It's a TV drama, I should say, uh, called This Scepter Dial by Michael Winterbottom, uh, which is going to be about the Prime Minister's handling of the coronavirus. Are we looking forward to this? No. I hope he doesn't do like a sympathetic portrayal like um, Cumberbatch did of Cummins. Like, I'd be saying to Branner, if I was directing, I was like, you know, play him as a prick. Um, and then I think we're fine. Like, I don't really want to relive it just yet, though. So uh, can it come out in like 10 years or something? I do, I agree. I really hope that it's prop, not like needlessly brutal, but just very kind of searing. I, I, it should be like very searing and very honest. And like Kenneth Branagh's a damn fine actor, but yeah, if it becomes anything that's kind of a bit sympathetic towards him, I'm just going to instantly turn off and not be bothered. Like, because that's the last, I don't, I don't expect that of Michael Winterbottom necessarily, but I think that's the last thing everyone needs, really. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd uh, been the movie, maybe. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what I don't get. Is it going to be a full-on comedy? Because Branagh is not known for his uh, his comedic acumen, is he? I mean, maybe it's going to be like, you know, not necessarily like laugh out loud funny, but sort of maybe the thick of it kind of energy, you know? So almost very true to life sort of thing, but very farcical and very over the top, maybe. I see what you mean. Yes, 24-hour party people was very irreverent, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem a good fit when it's like, oh yeah, let's have a laugh about this global pandemic that's killed hundreds of thousands of people and basically ruined everyone's life lol Mm -hmm. and also i feel like it's i don't i speak for myself here but i think it's a you know a lot of people feel the same of like i literally don't want to see anything about coronavirus or lockdown or like anything like that i think we've all experienced it we've all lived it like why on earth would you want to relive that in like a film or tv sense like it's just the i think it's a terrible idea just do another shakespeare branner then also, as well, like, I think Kenneth Branagh's got one of the best head of hairs in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> and and for him to lower himself to that absolute travesty, it's a shame. It's just a that shame. That absolute mop. <laughs> huh? very true. Do you, do you have any idea, um, if it, is it, like, all about Boris? Or is it kind of like Boris will be a bit of a side character? Or No, I believe, from what I've read, uh, the central character is indeed our... Our dear leader Alexander before Boris Johnson, um, and it's 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 covering his ascension to power, his glorious victory, and then his now fall from grace. No, thank you. 
So it does sound so it does sound very Shakespearean, doesn't it? In 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 tone. Yeah, like Merry Wives of Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so as I say, we are going to talk this uh, this episode about uh, three films that, while not necessarily being our particular all-time favourites, are three films that we hold in particularly high regard uh, and mean something to us. Uh, so uh, I think we're going to start with Bill. Do you want to do you want to go first? Yeah, I think the thing about Fast and Furious Seven is <laughs> it... <laughs> I'll watch the wrong no. film in, pre- in preparation. <laughs> No, I've I've chosen um, uh, Scorsese's masterwork, Goodfellas, which I think is his pinnacle. It's fantastically made, but also a really enjoyable watch. Um, which which I, when I was thinking about um, what film to choose, I, I use them as my my criteria because, you know, I I'm not going to say it's his best ever film. Um, I think that's open to debate, but I compare it to like you're not going to stick taxi driver on on a friday night and have a beer and go oh this will be this will be good whereas goodfellas i think you can i think you can just enjoy it um i think it's very fun it's very funny um but it also has a lot of substance to it i think obviously the cast is is fantastic um you know everyone's on the top of the game there there are some incredible performances in it but i do think that in in some ways the cast is so good and the performances are so good that it overshadows just how great scorsese is with it um his, his directing of it i i love the way it looks i love the choices he makes with it it's it's almost when you watch it and i don't know whether you boys agree with me on this one that it, it feels very experimental it feels very weird the guy makes weird choices and i think one of the one of the standouts for me when i watched it again is in the uh the shoeshine scene he he decides to um put donovan's atlantis coming on during that during that um horrific assault and i just i was just thinking about it it's a scene i've seen many times before but i was just thinking that's weird, my. That's a weird choice, but it works. Um, and and I, and I love that about it. I absolutely love that about it. I feel like it's interesting that you've mentioned the that particular musical cue because in watching it again, I totally was like blown away by how well integrated the soundtrack is into the action. Because I think it's just a lot of those sort of films. There's a bit of a a habit for like just a, a record, like no, a needle drop is the phrase where it's like, here's this fun song. And it can jar it a little bit and feel a bit strange. But I was amazed by how well that score and how well the soundtrack is integrated into those scenes where it completely it builds the mood, it builds the tension, it lightens the tension. They, the songs are doing so much hard work and it's just amazing to see someone so grappling really well with all those different elements of like filmmaking. It's amazing. It is like a soundtrack of real bangers, isn't it? But it's used as a kind of a sound collage, also almost, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I compare it to, and I love Tarantino, but sometimes his his soundtracks they do feel a little gimmicky, and it feels like he's he's putting these songs in because he likes them and he wants you to hear them in the in the film. And I think with Scorsese, it's the the. The, the songs just feed into the fabric of the film and they're just they're just a part of it as you say they're a part of that world and they're I, I think there's a really good word you use when you just said it was seamless and it does it does all just feel like a complete package doesn't it it all it all works um really well um with with the with the music in it and the music's great which helps i think the um it's interesting that the way i've sort of looked look back at it now is that you know, it came out in 1990 was it 
So it sort of feels like it's very much the first film that really defines the 90s in that it's 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 got that slick edge to it. It's really stylish. It's very violent. The soundtrack of bangers that we've already talked about. It feels like it's Scorsese claiming and very much redefining the gangster crime genre and, and sort of setting the path for the likes of Tarantino, the likes of Guy Ritchie and all sorts of scores of others as well that come over the over the course of the decade. I mean, one of the things that I read about it, Scorsese's approach to it, was that he wanted to he wanted to edit it like a like a two and a half hour trailer, so that you know it was there's no wastage, there's no baggage, the scenes rip along from you know from one to the next. There's nothing extraneous about it, and I think that's the quality that because he's filmed it consciously like that, it doesn't ever get boring, and like you say, it is endlessly rewatchable. That's yeah, that's that's really interesting. That I, I, now thinking of it, and you do think there's so many trailer shots in it, isn't there? That that you can you can pick out. Um, yeah, that does keep it on rails. For what when you actually think of the story, and this is one of the things I quite like about it as a portrayal of of crime, is the story itself is quite meandering. It's it's a life. Um, there's no you know the Lufthansa heist that they do it happens off screen, um, and it's all just the fallout from it. Henry Hill in it. It doesn't actually do anything that exciting um, with regards to crime. It's never clear exactly what he's doing for these guys. You know, it's 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 very much it shows the the mundane aspect of of that life, um, which, as you said, Mike, yeah, that a lot of a lot of films have, have followed on from there, and, and the Sopranos and whatnot. Um, but it because of the way it's shot and the, because of the, the the frantic pace of it, it's it's incredibly exciting incredibly exciting watch one thing i just wanted to get your opinion on um so you mentioned at the start that you're saying it's, it's obviously the kind of film that you'd put on you know have a laugh it's real it's fun it's funny there's a lot of great things to enjoy about it uh, one thing i found with it is i found a slight issue with it doesn't really explore too much about why these people are gangsters you know and i feel like in that that kind of means that it ends up kind of very much glamorizing it, which is the thing that I always find annoying about gangster movies is that it becomes this, this life is amazing and it's such cool thing being a gangster. And yeah, you might get killed, but who cares? And I feel like all that Goodfellas really does to contextualize his decision is that iconic quote at the start of, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. And I feel like it doesn't really do much more than that. I know it was kind of like a statement rather than a question, but... <laughs> well, here's my rebuttal. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I, I think that's a fair point, but I think it shows why he's so seduced by this life in the same way the audience is, because you're there and you're watching it and you think, I want to hang out with these guys. These, are, these guys are great fun. I want to go to this card game, the banter going around the table, and then an innocent barman gets shot. Um, and it's horrific. Um, you know, they they have these lives, and I think you see under the under the um, the skin of it. Well, there's that scene when um, when his wife hangs out with the other wives, and she sees the gritty underside of it. And I'd, I'd argue the last the last um, section of the film, the final third, you do you do start to think, oh my gosh, this is horrific. And I think the scene though that really encapsulates it is the the Joe Pesky funny how do I amuse you because I think that shows you want to hang out with this guy he seems life of the party so much fun and then he changes and he's a complete psychopath and yes it turns out to be a joke but all this time you get the feeling that they've got this constant pressure on them and people getting whacked but I do think it it's 
it shows why he wants to be part of that life because it does look so uh, seducing. You like I don't think that's a word, is it? Seducing, um, seductory, seductive. That's it, seductive. There we go. I'm not much of a seductive guy myself, so I don't use the word. <laughs> much. But um, yeah, I, I think that is that's why uh, you get the feeling that's why he wants to do it. He wants to get out of this life and live this life of glamour the the tracking shot through the restaurant everyone's your friend everyone shows you respect um and and i think that that shows why it is so intoxicating but you have this undercurrent of of just terror um and and i I do think that's an interesting juxtaposition in, in the film i i read a really interesting thing about speaking of joe petty um that the actual guy that he's playing was actually like i think six foot five and was built like you know built like a massive bodybuilder he was a huge intimidating fella i think it's such a funny idea that you obviously i think the idea was that that guy looked physically imposing and also was absolutely off the rails crazy and it's such a fun thing to have joe pesci play him where he's obviously tiny and has that like napoleon complex but brings that energy to it that is genuinely terrifying at points in this tiny little ball of rage like it's such a fun performance what if you were if you were if you were fronting a film school class what is there a particular scene that you would pick out as being a this is a particularly noteworthy in terms of technical achievement scene or sequence well i think there's a there's a couple of standouts obviously the the tracking shot through the restaurant is just I think it's the pinnacle of of filmmaking. Apparently that was purely accidental, that they didn't intend, that wasn't in the screenplay or anything. It was because the restaurant they filmed it in didn't allow them to go through the front. So they had to work out, right, okay, well, we're filming inside, but they couldn't go through the front entrance. So it was just off the hoof. That's so cool. Wow. Which makes it even more impressive, doesn't it, really? Brilliant. That's brilliant. (laughs) I'm now imagining them doing a last minute, like, God, go get some waiters here again. <laughs> Marty running around stressing out. <laughs> but why? Why is that? Why, why is that such a uh, notable scene? I think because it shows, like I was just talking about, the entry into this life, um, and it shows when you actually break down the scene. He's go. He's taking her through the side entrance, through the kitchen, through the um, the, the cloak rooms, and everything. And it's all behind the scenes, and it's all. Actually, not a nice way to be entering a restaurant, but the way it's so smooth and the way it's so seamless and it goes in and the flow of it, and then it it, it transforms then into this glitzy, lovely nightclub uh, restaurant that they're in. It, I think that's that sums up the film, basically, that, that these guys are living on the edges of society. They are the wrong side of the tracks and it is got this dark underbelly, but they're able to just glide through it and they're all so confident and they're all, it's all just so easy for them. Um, and I do think that that is, is why it's a standout scene in the film. I'd say the other technical um, bits that stand out for me are towards the end, I think the editing, when he's uh, looking at the helicopter, it's all, you feel the walls are closing in on you. I think that is masterful editing there. Um, the, the shots, the music, um, just just the way it feels so frantic. It, it reminds me slightly of um, Uncut Gems, uh, like we talked about last week there. I think it, think it did tie in. You get that fevered, nerve-wracking um, uh, fear, I think, um, in, the, in those scenes. And I do think that's down to the editing and the, the shot choices. Then the other bit, I, I wouldn't say it's particularly technical, but I just have to say, because it's, it's probably one of my two favourite shots out of any film, um, is the slow push-in on, uh, on Robert De Niro's face, where he's deciding he's going to whack everyone, and, uh, and Sunshine of Your Love plays. And you can just, 
I just think it's the best acting I've I've ever seen. I, you can see his mind whirring as he's having a drag of the cigarette, and you can just you just know what's happening, and it's terrifying and it's brilliant and no dialogue. I just think De Niro absolutely aced that one. Incredible, incredible. In terms of uh, how it sits within Scorsese's oeuvre. You've already said it may not be his best work. How how do you think it sits? Because it was very much a turning point for him in terms of the very different from the films that he'd been making in the eighties up to that point. I mean, I think Last Temptation of Christ was the film he made prior, and then it's it, so it is very much a pivotal film, isn't it? Because he then, although it's it influenced so many other directors, it, he he then proceeded to sort of almost pastiche it himself in numerous other films, all all very good. But I mean, you can see Casino, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street. They're all essentially homages to Goodfellas, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think Goodfellas was kind of, even though he'd been wildly successful before, this was kind of his ticket into the big time. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say it, it was a blockbuster, you know, and it, and it is so popular and everyone has seen it. You know, you'd argue more people have seen Goodfellas than they have Taxi Driver or Raging Bull, which are some of his films that you could argue are better films. I think Raging Bull especially is a beautiful, beautiful piece of cinema, um, but it's not as accessible as, as Goodfellas. And I do think he he is so fascinated with that life and there was so much more he wanted to explore you know as you say casino was basically a sequel it felt like um and he's not he's 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 never really moved on from it because he's he, he brought out the irishman um last year was it um so yeah i do think it's it, it was his his ticket in he realized he's the best at doing this and he, he obviously had more stories to tell so there was a case he he stopped doing some of the more experimental films um you know his wildly different um genres that he likes he still has but yeah i think it was his his ticket into this this is massively popular appeal film all right so sam are you gonna talk to us about your your film choice i am indeed um so the film i'm going to talk about is um the 1926 silent comedy the general. I just want to put a quick caveat out there before I start that I love silent comedy. I love Buster Keaton. I love steam trains. So even if this film had just been 80 minutes of Buster Keaton really authentically running a steam railway, I still would have given it like a seven out of 10. Like it's really. Can early Michael Portillo. <laughs> yeah, if it had just been Great British Railway Journeys, but in the past, I'd still be like, it's one of the best things out there. So The General is a silent comedy from 1926, starring, directed, and co-written by Buster Keaton, who had just turned 30 years of age when he made the film. The General is widely considered by many people, including Buster Keaton himself, to be his best film. It's the highest-ranked movie from the silent era on the American Film Institute's 2007 list of the 100 greatest American films of all time. Um, I had a look, and Goodfellas is in that list as well, uh, um, at 92. Unfortunately, Michael, the film that you've picked isn't American, so the American Film Institute do not recognise it as a film worth talking about. It's all the better for it. Um, It's also really highly rated on Sight and Sound's 2012 poll, and is also really highly rated on IMDb as well, so it's very much like the pinnacle of silent comedy. So Buster Keaton loved it as well. In 1963, he said, I was more proud of that picture than any I ever made because I took an actual happening out of the history books and I told the story in detail too. 
which as well as being really nice that he loved the film is a very good summation of what he liked about films that he could be very exact and very detail oriented which you wouldn't necessarily think would make for a great comedy but surprisingly it does um so the film's loosely based off a book called uh, the great locomotive chase which is about a real event that happened during the american civil war Basically, some Union army troops commandeered a train in the south near Georgia and took it northward towards Tennessee, doing as much damage as possible as they could along the way to the railroad. They were pursued by Confederate forces who eventually tracked them down. So Buster Keaton and the creative team that made The General, they made a few changes and additions to the original story. The key difference being that in the real story, the northern spies that stole the train never actually made it back to their own line. They got caught on their way back and were actually held as prisoners for quite some time before being released. Um, One fun thing I found out while researching is um, Buster Keaton never actually wrote any scripts for any of his films. He'd have a load of kind of key creatives that he'd work with and they wrote treatments and very vague story outlines. They'd write, he goes to see the girl he comes back to do this. So really, really basic stuff. And because at the time he was very he was making films independently for his own production company and could do whatever he wanted, he could spend months and months and months working out really specific details of the films and the stunts and the skits and so forth and be very, very authentic about the recreation of the time and the period and history and so forth. Before I get into the kind of like meat of the film and so forth, kind of just want to address the elephant in the room, as it were. So obviously, it's set during the American Civil War, and like a lot of films of the era, focuses on what was happening in the South um, and the Confederate armies. There was a lot of instances of this happening in the first half of the 20th century. Um, I don't really know, I'm not a film scholar, I couldn't tell you why that was happening, but there was loads of films that were really about the South, set in the South after the Civil War. So the film itself is set in Marietta, Georgia, just before the American Civil War kicks off. And it focuses on the Confederate Army. And the film ends with the South winning a battle against the North, which ends up making the war go on even longer. Obviously, the setting is very troublesome. And whilst the general, thankfully, doesn't engage in too much uncomfortable racism in the same vein as Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation, it's undeniably a presence in the film because he obviously Buster Keaton was very authentic in his recreation of time and place. So inevitably, it's a thing that's there. The, one of the reasons why I think it is still worthy of kind of people's attention is because it doesn't focus on the politics at all. It's very much a story about one man doing one thing, having like a very direct mission. So a lot of Buster Keaton films are about him doing one specific thing. And The General is a great example of taking that idea. So he basically got this book read that story and said, I could do that. That's a fun film. That's a good idea for a movie. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the same situation in the film Das Boot, where Das Boot is obviously all about loads of Nazis in a Nazi U-boat. But because the film's about those people and their experiences, you unconsciously side with the Nazis, even though obviously the Nazis are awful. The Confederate army was awful. It, 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 It totally makes sense to me that somebody would write off the general and ignore it because of its, you know, because of that Confederate leaning to the story. And I think if someone was to do that for that reason, then is to kind of ultimately miss out on what I think is one of the greatest comedies ever made. It's really interesting, isn't it? That like Keaton's character, he sort of, he doesn't display any real loyalty or 
or fondness for the South or for the cause, does it? He's very much, like you say, he's focused on that one thing. He cares only about Annabelle, the girl that he's trying to win over and, and his locomotive, you know, that's all we, and he, you know, that this, it's symbolic, isn't it? In the way that he changes the uniforms throughout, it's kind of, you know, it's as expedient to him. He'll just change the, change the uniforms to suit his mission. Very much so. And I think like that's a, a, the, the, one of the reasons the film works so well for me is that it's this huge, big story and this, a massive event but he really narrows down the focus of all he wants to do is get his engine back and save the girl and that's basically the film's plot really it's kind of an extended chase sequence at the start of the film buster tries to join up they hear that war is being declared and so he tries to sign up but he is denied entry into the army because they decide that he's more useful as an engineer and a engine driver than he is as a as um a soldier they obviously don't tell him this, which leads to hilarious consequences. Basically, about a year into the war, he his engine gets stolen by the Union, who try and race it back to their lines, and he pursues them, captures his engine, and comes back. It's a really simple story, but obviously creates this huge playground for all these incredible skits, scenes, and bits and pieces. One of the really impressive set pieces is towards the end of the film where Buster Keaton comes back and he sets fire to a railway bridge, hoping to ensnare um, uh, the train as they come back. Rather than do it with a miniature, with a model, he was like, no, I want to do this properly. And so got a real train, a real bridge over a real river, really set it on fire and then just smashed it into the river. It cost at the time $42,000, which is equivalent to more than $600,000 today and is the single most expensive shot in film history. And like, it's a tiny little bit of the film. It's obviously a great moment, but it's so much effort put into such a small, like blink and you'll miss it bit of film. Isn't it? I I read uh, that they turned it into a bit of a spectacle and a bit of an event, and there was like thousands of locals who turned up, and it was advertised as be come along and see this this one shot thing. As will I'm sure become clear from, uh, as we go through this podcast in the future. I'm not really a fan of the kind of modern Marvel CGI blockbuster. Thing. I think you know that sort of bores me a bit. But this that see that sequence is still actually quite quite breathtaking. Really, it's so audacious. It's just yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, I got a question about that um, because obviously watching it and and when it was made and you're saying that that you know that's a that's a one take wonder you've got one chance at getting that right presumably there must have been stuff he planned that didn't work and was it a case of that he just he'd just move on to a different stunt then or a different different gag um, you know was it was it quite a, did the did the filmmaking process and the, the film itself quite evolve through basically trial and error or did everything work perfectly because I, I just find that absolutely incredible um that you know you've got one shot at this it's incredibly dangerous if we're doing it for real yeah let's get an actual train actual bridge sod it let's blow it up um i i, I find it must have been incredibly intense process there it's Almost the exact opposite. Obviously, that scene is a one-take wonder. Like, they're not going to go and get 40 other locomotives to crash to get it right. Like, that was very much, we're doing this and that's it. But because the filmmaking process was so flexible and so loosey-goosey, it meant that they could try these things over and over and over and over and over again. And if something wasn't working out properly, they were like, right, let's all sit down and think about what this can, how we can make this better, how we can improve this moment. Like, the... um do you know the scene where he's sitting at the front of the train on the cow catcher and he's got that big wooden pole and ends up like 
using it to balance and knock off the other bit, the other pole that's blocking the way. Like that just kept doing that over and over again until he got it exactly right. And because he's obviously it's a purely visual medium, a silent film, it was even like getting it right was like, it still could have looked better. It could have arced better. So like, it's why I think these Buster Keaton films around this era are so good because they could just do the same things over and over again, try all this stuff until it was absolutely a hundred percent perfect. I mean, that does lead me on quite nicely to my next point that unsurprisingly it went massively over budget. Buster Keaton's production company, they made a tiny, tiny little profit on it, but the um, United artists who distributed the film lost loads of money on it because they had a certain budget that was from the film that they would use for promo. But obviously the budget was so big that their promo budget just got taken away. So the United Artists lost loads of money on it. Whilst the film wasn't a huge flop, it wasn't a massive success either. It was very much, a lot of people were a bit bored by it at the time. It had a lot of, effectively, a lot of people just going, yeah, it's all right. Like a lot of critics at the time felt that Buster Keaton, because of his classic stone face expression, that he was very poorly suited to a, such a dramatic role because the general relies a lot on comedy as and drama and sorry, drama and comedy. It's big on the pathos. And whereas someone like Chaplin or Harold Lloyd have got their face uh, facial expressions to go crazy on, Buster Keaton, much in a similar vein to Robert De Niro in Goodfellas, it's all about the kind of subtlety and the internal workings of that, which a lot of people at the time were like, what on earth is, like, I don't care. I'm not seeing him go, <gasps> or doing a big face. So this is rubbish. So a review from the New York Mirror complained that this expensive civil war monologue had a too pronounced eye shaping its destiny one wearied of the star's expressionless monologue really fun yeah because a lot of people at the time as well were complaining that because buster keaton's the star of the film they were like no one else has anything to do which is kind of the point because it's a buster keaton film there's an awful lot of trains in it i mean (laughs) yeah it's great for people who like trains and buster keaton the really sad thing about The General is that because it didn't do too well and the film that he made next, a film called College, didn't do very well either, he basically was no longer able to make his independent Buster Keaton production movies. He went and signed a deal with MGM where he was, rather than director, producer, writer, everything, he just became Buster Keaton, the actor. So they gave him all these scripts and a lot of doctoring and a lot of things of like, no, you can't do that budget needs to come down so he got completely smashed by the hollywood system for me it's the ultimate example of an artist at the height of their powers one of the reasons i find it so funny is because all of the stunts and all of the skits and all of the jokes are basically problems that he needs to solve but he just happens to solve them in hilarious ways so he's not mugging for the camera he's not doing something deliberately silly but he creates these incredible comedy moments in a very like sensible way. And that's a very weird way of putting it. But he creates, there's there are problems to be solved and they just happen to be solved in the most hilarious way you can imagine. Well, you know, um, last week we were saying, I, I was saying I watched Uncut Gems and it stressed me out. Um, watch The General. Bloody hell. You know, that that is... <laughs> That is a that's a it's it's in many ways a very stressful film to watch because it, it's one thing after another in it. But no, I, I totally agree. I think it is it is a masterfully put together film. And um, I was going to ask a question. You know, I'm a I'm a big I'm a big action film fan. 
and I think the one of the most important things for a good action film is is the geography of the action of you know where all the major players are you know um you know what what the the threat is um just just by looking at the the, the shot and how the stunt is is made up and i think the general and obviously buster keaton was the master of that and i think he sort of invented it as well C- can you talk about any of the influences you you see on modern cinema from buster keaton yeah um i, I feel like there's almost too many to name and it's really funny because i think buster keaton kind of pioneered that really meticulous way of doing stunts like there's obviously there was a lot of people in the silent era that did a lot of stunt work and a lot of really great impressive things but he found a way of doing it that incorporated his character and his persona as well so like take for example the the harold lloyd film safety last you know the one where he's hanging off the clock tower like there's a lot of really good stunt work in that but it's all the kind of stuff that happens to him as he's doing that that becomes the joke and becomes the funny thing. Whereas Buster Keaton, I think, pioneered that way of the thing you're seeing is really impressive, but it's also really funny and it's also really interesting to look at and it's also serving the purpose of the story. And one person that I think really took the Buster Keaton mantle and ran with it is Jackie Chan. You can really see the Buster Keaton influence in so many of the classic Jackie Chan movies because it's that mixture of comedy and action that when done right can be one of my favorite things to see. Only they could have worked together. Oh, the dream. Can you imagine? And also, there's countless visual motifs in Buster Keaton films that have literally been referenced in everything as diverse as Jackie Chan movies, The Simpsons, Jackass, like, they're everywhere. And I think so many people see, I think, like, everyone loves a good action film, but the idea of, like, an action film that's also really funny, what's not to love? Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, my film choice now. This is a... With Nail and I, a British black comedy uh, released in 1987. It was written and directed by Bruce Robinson. It's loosely based on his experiences as a young, unemployed actor living with a real life with Nail, a guy called Vivian McCarroll. Uh, and it's, it is well worth reading uh, the screenplay in book form because there's a, a beautiful introduction uh, that uh, Robinson wrote about his, his by then deceased friend. So the plot, for those who haven't seen it, uh, centres around two friends, uh, the titular with now and I, uh, who live in a form of squalor in Camden, uh, and they're sinking deep into a, a, you know, basically alcoholism, and they decide to escape to the Lake District uh, as a form of restoration. Uh, to paraphrase it, you know, they go on holiday by mistake. But they find the Lake District uh, just as bleak and uninviting as Camden, and they're you know they're staying in uh, the rundown cottage of of uh, Withnell's uncle Monty, and they encounter all sorts of run-ins with local a local poacher. They have to entertain Uncle Monty when he descends on them uh, before returning to London. So I think there are several reasons why I love this film so much. The writing, first and foremost, it's it is one of the one of the perfect scripts. It's endlessly quotable. And I think, you know, you can pick, you can almost pick any line uh, and, and find it, find it funny or find something in it that is quite unique and unusual. There are multiple hilarious scenes and set pieces, you know, from them being drunk in the Penrith 
tea shop when they're terrified when they think they're about to be murdered in the middle of the night with nailed down in the lighter fluid the chicken sat in the oven there's there's countless little moments like that and i think you know the dialogue is often on a par with poetry actually i think yeah there are lots of really strange and enchanting turns of phrase and whimsy and i mean just to just to a little snapshot of that i think this is uncle monty uh, one scene. I'm, I'm not going to do the voice, but just to give us just a little snapshot of the, the kind of dialogue that we're talking about. And he says, the old order changeth, yielding place to new, and God fulfills himself in many ways. And soon, I suppose, I shall be swept away by some vulgar little tumour. Ah, my boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by labour, and here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. You get a sense of, there is that whimsical, oldy English, beautiful coinages of, coins of phrase that I, all the way through it. Moving on from the writing, the performances are superb. Um, it was the breakthrough role for Richard E. Grant. Interestingly enough, I mean, he's a lifelong teetotaler, but managing to portray... Uh, sodden, dr- sodden drunk. Uh, yeah, and in, there's an interesting anecdote in that Bruce Robinson insisted that he could not play the role of Withnow if he had never experienced either being completely paralytic or being having a really bad hangover. So he insisted he go out on a drunken binge in which Bruce Robinson was just feeding him vodka and Richard E. Grant was vomiting all, all the time. And that's the one occasion apparently on which he's drunk alcohol. Wow, that's insane. Um, which wow. really, yeah. Uh, uh, Richard E. Grant aside, you know, Paul McCann obviously playing playing I and and Richard Griffiths. I, I would I would say their career best performances from all three. But really, it's about more than that for me as to why I love with and I. I think if you peel back a layer from the from the surface humour, what the film does is it reflects it reflects a post imperial Britain and this unrelentingly bleak aesthetic: the greasy cafes, the shit pubs, the constant drizzle. It's grey. It's it's awful, you know, and it doesn't improve in the countryside. That's the thing about it. It's challenging that myth that the great outdoors and nature is there solely to make you feel better and to restore you. It doesn't. It's just as uninviting. I mean, the time at which it was made in 1987 is so the very height of of Thatcherism, perhaps even past the peak of Thatcherism by that point. Britain was looking very different, widening disparities. And so I think the film, it reflected in the, the juxtap- it reflected that in the juxtaposition of these characters, you know, the Southern urbanites and the Northern country folk, they look so and sound so different, but so alike in the, in the grimness and the miserable sensibilities. It also reflects the fading away of, you know, the Edwardian war generation, you know, Uncle Monty, and also, you know, the, the major who's the landlord of the, of the pub, you know, that, and and the difference between them and the disaffected youth of with and I, you know, and you see that again in the antagonisms in the in the tea shop when they turn up drunk, you know, with the older generation, and then when they have to explain to, they have to explain to Uncle Monty about signing on and how it's it's fashionable, and he's quite horrified by that. So there's that real generational divide there that I, I think the film captures really interestingly. The film also explodes the myth of the 1960s as this glorious cultural high point, which was still in vogue uh, in in the 1980s and, and would become even even more entrenched in the 90s. There's a sense of 
the great come down that of the you know the swing in sixties had very much already ended by this point. The film's set in nineteen sixty nine. You know already the harshness and the and the paranoia of the nineteen seventies is setting in, and nowhere is this more perfectly encapsulated than in Danny the drug dealer's iconic lines. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. You know, since the old capitalist order has already started to commodify this supposedly profound cultural revolution. You know, the greatest decade in the history of mankind is over and we have failed to paint it black. It's a it's a really beautiful social commentary. Yes, I I completely agree. I, I was just thinking I I absolutely love it and I find it I, I find it so funny that I think I do it a disservice in that I don't think about the other themes that it's 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 getting at and the other stuff under the surface because I think I'm just so distracted laughing um, because it's it's unrelentingly hilarious. Um, I was going to ask you both, um, what are your views on on with Nail in it? Do you think he is in the end a good friend, or is he this this just chaotic monster? I've realised this rather more in, in recent watchings over recent years. Is that it is at its heart a really melancholic study of male bonds and and friendship, and, and it is very male. There are next to no women in the whole film at all. You know, and it's it's got that English grudging nature in it. I mean, it, you know, I hate I hate to quote Morrissey, but you know, the, the, one of the only good things about Morrissey is his song titles. But you know, that song title, you know, we hate our friend, we hate it when our friends become successful. You know, there is that sense, that English begrudging nature about it. But as you see right at the end, there is real fondness between the two of them. You know, it's very touching. You know, I can't remember when I first watched it. I think I was in my late teens, I, and I've watched it with lots of different friends and, and yourselves over the years. You know, there's that whole. You can watch it in in different ways. There's the you know, the sort of university thing of doing the drinking game, which is a large part of its cult classic status. But I think that really does the film a disservice. Um, you know, I, I love it as I've said for it for its melancholy, its its achingly English atmosphere of struggle and failure. I I think he is a good friend. They obviously have deep bonds to one another, but they're both ambitious. They're both young actors. They're both kind of on the cusp of being too old, really, to be behaving in this way. You know, they're both, I think, you know, he says at one point, I'm a year off being 30. So they're, they're, they shouldn't, they're acting and behaving like students in this squalor. They really are, you know, at the, at the point of it's being a bit too late for this sort of thing. And I think you see it in that final, the final fa- fantastic scene in the in the Regent's Park, where he's, you know, he's just seen his friend off, his, his friend has gone off to, uh, to take up his his role that he's been been offered, and he you know the the it's the what what a piece of work is a man's soliloquy from Hamlet you know I, I don't think I've seen a a better depiction of that particular soliloquy. Richard E. Grant nails it to be quite honest. So I think yeah, in answer to your question, yes, I think I think he is a he is more than a monster. There is more there. He's he's coming to terms with his own failed ambitions. Yeah, I feel like. You're completely bang on that. Like they are, that he is a monster at points, but there is definitely kind of there is fondness and there is warmth between them. I think one of the things that I really love about Withnal and I is how good a portrayal it is of actors. It's such a great kind of well, a very damning portrayal of that kind of selfishness and that self-obsessive nature to it. And I think inevitably, you know to be a really good actor, you have to be looking out for number one sort of thing. But the way that it's captured in Withnell and I, where they're both obviously very fond of each other and want to kind of 
want each other to have the best. They are ultimately always looking out for themselves, both of them. And I think it's such a wonderful, like, statement about that kind of energy of just sort of like being in it for yourself, but also like reluctantly caring about people, but kind of pretending that you don't care, but secretly you do. It's just a really great kind of like complicated portrayal of what a lot of actors are like. I think the reason why it's so, it has endured so much is because I don't think there really is, it's quite singular. Like it, there isn't, there isn't really much like it. There hasn't really been a, a kind of like in the, uh, differently to obviously the general and, and Goodfellas, there hasn't been this contrail of, of imitations. It's very, it is very singular in that way. And, and I think as well, it's because of, I mean, Bruce Robinson, his career somewhat stalled afterwards. I mean, he didn't really do very much. He's written a few books, but his film career is is pretty uh, pretty nondescript. So, I mean, it, it stands alone and it's it's unique, and I think that's why people love it so much because it it, it is a it kind of feels sort of singular to to you. You feel like it's it's just for you, and you get the jokes, and that's it. But it's it's not. It's you know, so many people love it dearly. I think another one of the reasons why it holds up so well as well is like Bill, you were mentioning earlier, the I like just there's so much great dialogue and so many great jokes in it that every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, I completely missed that joke last time. I didn't rem- remember that line at all. And I think it's always, it's such a perfectly crafted bit of film that like, it just keeps giving every time that you give something back to it. Like every time you watch it, you get something new out of it. And it almost, you're right, does feel like if anyone was thinking about trying to imitate it, they just would watch with them and I and go, how am and how is anyone going to be able to top what that film manages to do? Like, it's a singular achievement, really. Do you know what I find, I find interesting when I'm thinking about it now is it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's that many sight gags or gross out moments in it. it. Seems to be quite unique in, especially in when I'm thinking about my favorite comedies, in that it is mostly just the dialogue. That's funny. Yeah, there's some there's some set pieces. I'm thinking of the bull, um, obviously the break-in scene, but they're not sight gags, really. There's not, and and there's no. I can't really think of many. The gross-out moment, obviously, is the lighter fluid, and then when he does, he put talcum and powder all over himself or something to try to stay warm. That's not right. Um, but I th- I think in comparison to most comedies, certainly most modern comedies, um, yeah, I can't I can't really think of much. So that's a strange little wrinkle of it isn't it yeah i think on that note as well like because the like you mentioned earlier michael about like the scenery and the setting and the gray damp drizzly britain sort of thing it creates this world so convincingly like when you're in their flat at the start and their gross kitchen and all the like faded posters and the weird bathroom and so forth like almost the whole film creates these rooms and these areas that are themselves kind of sight gags almost like the places that they're in are so well put together and so perfect to what those characters like that they almost become a character themselves it's it's not it's not a visual gag that keeps going but you just keep noticing all those gross little details or the weird little like stuff in and then the the tea rooms is a great example of like the whole sight gag as it were is that the juxtaposition of them being battered in this very nice tea room so it's like these weird like very simple sight gags and very simple visual jokes where it's like the whole joke here is everything that you're seeing rather than just one moment i guess 
So that was three of our three of our favourite films. Uh, as will become a recurring feature uh, of this podcast, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what some of the stuff that we've we've watched over the past week. Uh, does does either of you want to go first? I think I should just to get this out of the way because um, I've I've let you down this week, and you know it's our first time. I am. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of westerns, um, so whenever I see one on, especially if it's one I haven't seen, I'm just I think I owe it to myself to watch it. And I've been avoiding this film for a very long time because I suspected it might be utter utter shit. Um, and I watched Young Guns, um, which is uh, Emilio Estevez brat pack um, telling of. Uh, Billy the Kid and the Regulators and um, yeah I didn't enjoy it I did not enjoy it and it's weird because it's um, it's got such a cult following and it's you know it's featured in the Regulate song by um, Nate Dogg and Warren G and um, and there's there's loads of lines in it that are, that are referenced in other stuff and it's it's got this you know everyone says oh it's got this charm but I think I obviously watched it way too late and I compared it to other westerns and I just thought it was laughable I mean it just even down to the makeup and hairstyling they're, they're going around with these 80s bouffants and uh, you know Charlie Sheen just does not look like a cowboy it's it's yeah I, I think Billy the Kid would be offended uh, basically Kiefer Sutherland wasn't bad at it and, is it supposed um, to be funny or is it very much one of those ones where like it's become a cult classic because people love laughing at it because it's not funny but it is funny do you know, I think it's the latter because it's quite a serious story. You know, a lot of them die. Um, and, you know, they were, they were, uh, they were outside the law. And yeah, I, I, there's, there's bits that are obviously meant to be funny, but they didn't, they didn't really make me laugh. That was a, that was a disappointment, um, really. I'm not going to watch the sequel, Young Guns 2. Um, I think I'll avoid that. So a film I watched over the past week, it's very rare that I will uh, willingly sit down and watch an animation, but I, I did. I decided to sit down and watch uh, Animal Farm, which from ni- 1954. Um, so this was produced by uh, a British husband and wife animation company called Hales and Bachelor. Uh, Hales and Bachelor were founded to create war information and propaganda films during the during the Second World War. And they carried on making films after in the post-war period. And this is Animal Farm is one of the first British animated feature films. And it does it does a commendable job with Orwell's source material. It's like a, a, quite a violent version of Disney. It's quite, uh, you know, it doesn't hold back. You know, there are, there's chickens being being strangled and pigs being shot. And, it, you know, it really doesn't, it doesn't hold back. But the ending, the ending deviates to a more redemptive conclusion of animal solidarity against the corrupt pigs, as opposed to Orwell's uh, rather more bleak ending in the, in the book. And the reason for this is because the extraordinary reality is that this film had been funded and commissioned by the CIA as part of a drive to use culture to combat communism, which is quite extraordinary and I think just for Orwell to be used by the leading superpower in the 1950s as a propaganda tool was just a delicious irony which I'm sure I'm sure he would not have appreciated I didn't know that that's I, I watched that film like late last year but I didn't know about that bit of that's really interesting what a weird little little tidbit I've not I've not seen it but I know of the film Mike because um the album cover of the Clash's um English Civil War 
is um is a scene from that film and it's actually my favorite album cover um i really love that i just did the the, the, the uh, i think it's the the horse looking at the pigs uh, with a shocked expression on his face and um yeah I've, 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 so i should i should watch it um but yeah i've always been aware from from that image and i, I just love i love how it how it looks that. sorry it's a great looking film as well I remember there being a lot of really good, like atmospheric shots as well. Like the shadows are used really well in it. There's lots of really, yeah, like you're saying, like it's a dark Disney kind of thing. There's a lot of those really creepy moments that are genuinely quite terrifying. And like I, it, I remember a friend of mine saying that he watched it when he was really, really young because a babysitter put it on as a kind of like this is a cool animated <laughs> film. And obviously, all of them were very shocked by what happened <laughs> it does make me wonder now how many other films the cia was secretly funding in the 1950s <laughs> <laughs> they had their fingers in the pies sam what have you been watching this week so there's two things i'd like to talk about um mainly because it showcases how this week i've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous um early on in this week um i watched the terence davies film the long day closes which was unexpected absolute pleasure which goes which is a weird thing to say because it's about like a really sad repressed upbringing in you know post-war Liverpool and it's about being bullied and having an awful time but it's one of the most like I don't it's magic it's magisterial it's such a beautiful thing like it's almost like I feel like if somebody said to me, do you want to do like a mindfulness exercise where you experience what it was like being a young boy in post-war Liverpool, I'd be like, that sounds really awful. But Terence Davies crafts this film in such a beautiful way that you're never quite sure what's flashback, what's memory, what's a dream. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. It was really... Because I've not watched any Terence Davies films, I don't think. That's the first one that I've seen and it set the bar ridiculously high. It's such a it's a it's a masterful bit of cinema. But at the other end of the spectrum, I watched the uh, Liam Neeson action film Nonstop, where he has to <laughs> stop on a plane in the sky. And um as I'm sure you can imagine, it's pretty much utter drivel. And one of the worst things in it is the um plane that they're on is run by a British a British company called Aqualantic, but they don't actually hire any people to play the stewards or the the pilots that are actually British. So everyone's doing these really awful British accents all the time, including Lapita Nyong'o, who, God love her, is doing one of the worst British accents I've ever heard. And yeah. I mean, there's, as you can expect, some good action in it, but so much of it is just Liam Neeson running around a plane. He needs, so, to, he needs to stop it now, does Neeson, doesn't he? He needs to go back to making good films. Like, or just stop. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it taken, yeah, okay, fine. Um, but now he just needs to give it a rest and go back to making good films. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sick of him. I'm sick of you, Liam. I'd never say this to his face, ever. I'd be like, oh, Liam, you're brilliant. Can't wait for nonstop too. Yeah, if I saw him, I'd be like, nonstop was amazing, Liam. I think you're really good. Can you make uh, the commuter again, please? You know, yeah. So it's been a really good week and also a really bad week, you know. Okay, well, we started with Goodfellas and we end with nonstop. There we are. Um... <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. Uh, that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with more film chats. Uh, don't forget to spread the word if you've enjoyed this. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Bill. 
speak to you both next week. Bye-bye. Bye.